Hello everyone, this is Scott Shelton here. Before we start today's brand new episode of Some Like It, Scott, just wanted to stop first and acknowledge to everyone that we recognize over here at the, Medi- at the Media Plug Podcast Network that last week's podcast audio was a bit of a disaster. Unfortunately, we had absolutely no way to recover it as my fellow Scott, Scott Harvey, said when we were texting back and forth about it, every good podcast has a lost episode here and there and I'm guessing that episode 21 is going to be our lost podcast, so thank you for being patient. Thank you for coming back this week, and we really hope that you enjoy this episode of the Some Like It's Got podcast. Welcome, everyone, to episode 22 of Some Like It, Scott, part of the Media Plug Podcast Network. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey, as we are fast approaching the quarter-century mark in episode numbering. Scott, ironically, it seems like I'm getting the honor these days of introducing all of our music-related movies between A Star is Born and then, of course, the movie we'll be reviewing in just a few minutes on the podcast here, Bohemian Rhapsody. But first, before we get to that, I'd love to hear how you've been doing. Yeah, so I've I've been kind of running the uh, the mock trial gauntlet recently. I, I I feel like this is what I always talk about on the show. But honestly, like my whole life nowadays is mock trial and movie. So this podcast kind of covers the whole gambit. But yeah, I've been doing I've been doing the uh, something of a gauntlet here the last two two weekends. Really, really have like a, a gauntlet of about three weekends here. Where two like last weekend I was in Cleveland with my teams for a tournament. Um, drove all the way there and back, which was exhausting. This weekend or yesterday, I was at Duke judging for a tournament. Then this weekend, I'm heading to Philadelphia, another long drive, um, to, to take my teams to the tournament at, at, uh, UPenn. Um, so yeah, it's been, uh, it's been pretty exhausting. That's been what's sort of consuming everything, uh, for me. But, you know, it's been fun. It's what I signed up for and getting to see Philly for the first time um, this week. So I'm, I'm excited for that, too. We get a, a little free day in the city on Friday. So uh, hopefully I'll get to, you know, run up the rocky stairs or something. You know, that's that's one of those bucket list things. Go, go eat a cheesesteak, you know. Got to do all the touristy stuff. Yeah, of course. I was in Philadelphia for work very briefly for like a day uh, a few weeks back. And I saw the rocky steps and my my manager... Uh, it said that he had gone that morning to to to, to run the Rocky Steps. Of course, he had got to get it in, and, I mean, and uh, obligatorily it has to be very early in the morning as well. So, <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we'll probably be up pretty early for for our tournament. So, uh, we'll we'll see if it can happen. All right. Well, Scott, our primary focus for the podcast today, as I've already mentioned, will be the recent biopic chronicling a portion of Freddie Mercury's life from the the Queen frontman's discovery and the formation of Queen itself in 1970 to the Live Aid concert in 1985 at England's Wembley Stadium. During that 15-year period, we see Freddie, played by Remy Malek, experience many cycles of highs and lows as he achieves his ultimate highs and his soul-crushing lows, stemming from struggles with his managers, his band members, his family, his lovers, and even himself. Surrounded by a supporting cast of Lucy Boynton, who plays Freddie's first partner, Mary Austin, Gwillem Lee, Ben Hardy, and Joseph Mazzello, who play his fellow band members of Queen, and then Brian, Brian, Roger, and John, respectively. And then finally, as well as Aidan Gillen, Alan Leach, Tom Hollander, and Mike Myers, who play various managers and producers connected to Freddie and Queen. 
Scott, Freddie Mercury is famed for his eccentric, flamboyant, yet captivating exterior, not to mention his stunning vocal cords, even if his interior was something more of a mystery uh, during his lifetime. Did you find that this movie peeled back any of those layers of Freddie Mercury, or was this, possibly like Freddie Mercury himself, more entertaining than enlightening? Yeah, well, I think it's interesting that that you framed the that you framed the, the movie as being about Freddie Mercury because I think that was my understanding going into it, um, and that's you know kind of how the movie was set up in trailers and whatnot that this was going to be sort of about Freddie Mercury or you know even at a higher level sort of the story of Queen, and I think that one of the things which surprised me was that this movie isn't really about Queen isn't really the story of Queen, and it's not even really the story of Freddie Mercury so much. It's more, um, to me, this movie was more a celebration of the music of Queen. And yes, there are there are elements of the Freddie Mercury story, um, and there are elements of the Queen story as a whole that, uh, you know, obviously are peppered throughout. But to me, these, these ele- those elements were more sort of just tying these scenes together, uh, and, and the real, like, showcase of the movie um was you know the scenes where they're coming up with their iconic songs like bohemian rhapsody another one bites the dust you know we will rock you all the incredible amazing hits that make queen what they are um and i think uh, you know there's nothing there's certainly nothing wrong with making a movie that's celebrating the music of queen because it is very easy to celebrate the music of queen i mean i i personally think that you know after I would probably put only the Beatles ahead of them when we're talking about the greatest rock and roll bands of all time. Um, I think that they they did something that would that was so unique for their time. Like in the, in in the same way that the Beatles were able to have really like strange experimental music that somehow still uh, appealed to like a mass audience, and I mean I mean a mass audience. Queen did the, does the exact same thing, I think, as the Beatles in that respect. I mean, Bohemian Rhapsody, they, you know, they make a good point about this in the movie that, like, when you look at that song, like, it's a weird song. Like, you know, you have this entire operatic section in the middle. Like, there's nothing about the song uh, that suggests to you that, like, oh, this is, you know, going to be a huge popular hit and going to go down as one of the most popular rock songs of all time, even though, yes, I think, from a musical standpoint, it is one of the greatest rock songs of all time. Um, but I think that as far as this movie goes, I think that much like the song itself, this movie uh, is not going to appeal to critics, but will probably uh, be a huge hit for fans. Um, however, unlike the song, I think that the critics probably got this one right um, when it comes to the movie, because I don't think that this um, is a very uh, high-quality film. Um, that being said, um, I certainly did enjoy watching the movie. I'm not sorry that I went to see it. Um, I was pretty entertained throughout, although I will say that I think the movie goes on for a long time. Um, and I haven't said that about the movie, that, uh, about a movie in a while, um, because I was saying it about every movie and I couldn't probably say it about every movie. I don't want to sound like a broken record, but I think it's, it is true about Bohemian Rhapsody. I think there are some parts where it drags and it's strange to me because, as much like as long as this movie is, it's two hours fifteen minutes long or close to that. Um, it feels like they they have two hours and fifteen minutes and they barely cover anything. Yeah. Like I I was like 
shocked that like 20 minutes, I mean, literally probably 20, 25 minutes into the movie, they've already written Bohemian Rhapsody and they're like on their headlining tour of the US. Yeah. Like it all happens so fast. I was and really surprised by that as well. That's why I, I say that it's not really a story about Queen. Like it, because we don't get a lot of about the formation of the band, how they, you know, created their first albums and stuff. Like we only get just as much as is necessary to sort of move the story along. And I think we do get a little more of the Freddie Mercury story, but at the same time, there were still large parts of it that I think were untold, or maybe just the movie didn't really ever get beneath the surface level when it came to telling Freddie Mercury's story. Um, so I think this this movie is really a mixed bag for me. Like, I, you know, there are some really enjoyable sequences in the movie, and I enjoyed learning some things that... Um, I did not know about Queen. Like, you know, I, I've always loved listening to their music, but I, there were a lot of elements to the story which I wasn't aware of. Um, and I, I guess I wish that the the filmmakers could have delved even further into these. But, I mean, they, they do cover some, some, you know, highlights from the Queen story that I, I you know, was not familiar with. So getting to getting to learn those... Details was interesting to me. And, I mean, the concert scenes in particular, you know, the, the final scene, which is recre- a recreation of the Queen's famous Live Aid gig. Uh, and the scene goes on for 10, 15 minutes, and it's just great. I mean, it's by far the highlight of the movie. Uh, mm-hmm. I could have sat there and watched the whole, watched them, you know, give a full hour-long set or whatever. I mean, it's re- it really is that good. Um, and, and their music really is just timeless and every song still holds up. Um, it's pretty amazing. I was, you know, kind of singing along a little bit in the theater to some of the, some of the songs for sure. Um, so yeah, I mean, I I wish that I really wanted this movie to be more because Queen, you know, is one of the most original, most influential bands of all time. But I think that this movie is, does not, is not the original or influential movie that they deserved. I think it's a pretty paint by the numbers, pretty formulaic, um, I guess you could call it a biopic, even though, like I said, I don't think it really goes very far into the Freddie Mercury story. Uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I think it's it's for sure a crowd pleaser. And if you are interested in seeing this movie, go see it because I think you're going to enjoy it. Um, I really do. But looking at it from a critical perspective, um, I think that there are a lot of areas where it's lacking. Yeah, I think I think I agree with the, a large majority of what you're saying. From you know, from the high level perspective, which I think you did a really good job of, of summing up, you have this movie where the way you described it was, you know, it in its two hours and fifteen minute runtime, or, or I think it's somewhere around there, like you pointed out, it doesn't cover very much. And and I was kind of thinking about it after I saw it, and I'm like, it's so interesting because this for me, this movie spends at least an hour, if not more, trying to figure out what exactly it wants to be or what it wants to do. And it's not because it tries to tackle too many things. It's just that it doesn't tackle anything. Yeah. And it's it's so that's such a confusing feeling for me as a viewer who you know does go into movie theaters pretty regularly and and tries to think about them more critically to walk away from because I it's a much more common experience to walk into a movie and then walk out thinking wow they just tried to do a little bit too much there or yeah. you know they, they didn't stay focused on the core of what they were trying to accomplish and that's. And that kind of undid some of the more peripheral parts of it, maybe, or, or maybe even undermined its core uh, itself. But this movie, 
it doesn't undermine itself. It just never decides what it wants to be. You, you mentioned this movie being, you know, part, you know, it, it, its largest part being a, a tribute to the music of Queen. And, and I totally hear where you're coming from. But at the same time, this movie does also try to be a biopic, I think, yeah. at, the, at the end of the day. And you have this weird combination of these two things. And to your point, and I totally agree with this, it doesn't really do either justice. You know, I, I can't make a judgment on whether or not it does Freddie Mercury story justice, although, you know, from my understanding, it, it doesn't. But, you know, it, it also, as cool as it is to see how some of these songs were made, and I mean, absolutely agree with you that the Live Aid performance, the last 20 minutes of the movie, is breathtaking. And, and you know, to the point where it's almost an overwhelming experience to, to kind of watch that in the theater. But at the same time, because it also spends time, you know, remembering that it has to be a biopic or that it was designed to be a biopic... It also puts the music on the back burner for some of the times. You, you mentioned the first 25 minutes of the movie, they've already made their first album or on their tour, but then they spend, you know, an hour or so debating whether, like, what the details of their second album and then the details around whether or not they'll make another album after that. And and you get this long holdup in the plot. And, and so the cadence is very strange in this movie. It I didn't particularly enjoy the first half of the movie, to be really honest. I, I kind of got halfway through the movie and I was like, well... What's the point of this? You know, and and I think that's a very sometimes that can be a very you know thick kind of highbrow critical thing to say. Be like, oh yeah, but like, what's the point? But I really did yeah. feel that way about this movie, and I enjoyed it. I absolutely, it, I think it's such a accurate thing to say about this movie is that you know if you if you're interested in hearing Queen music and and learning a little bit about Freddie Mercury, but but not really scratching much deeper than the surface. You're probably going to enjoy this movie a lot. Like if, if you're looking for something deeper about Freddie Mercury, you're, you might be left wanting more. In fact, I, I'd imagine you'd be left wanting more. But at the same time, like it, if you're the kind of person who you know went to see A Star Is Born and appreciated the rest of the movie, but you know ultimately came for the music, if you do the same for Bohemian Rhapsody, you're gonna you're not going to be disappointed. I don't think. And so it really just depends on how you approach this movie. But otherwise, I think I totally agree. Yeah, and I, I mean, I definitely agree with what you're saying about. I don't think it really does the biopic uh, or the you know the musical celebration very well. I mean, the biopic, for example, I- instead of spending time on what I was very interested in, what I think a lot of audiences would be interested in, I was actually uh, talking to my friend who I went to see this movie with, and we were both like, "Well, we wanted to know more about his family um, because, yeah. I mean, he has a very interesting background of like you know he." His ethnicity is like Persian, Indian. Um, his family is, you know, at least from the brief, uh, you know, moments that we see them in this movie, uh, you know, they seem a little conservative, maybe a little stodgy. Yeah. But like, I wanted to know more about, you know, what was their relationship like as Freddie Mercury was cultivating this image um, yeah. as, you know, this very flamboyant frontman, and you know, obviously later being. Uh, a gay man, like an outspoken gay man. Um, the the you know what what was their reaction to this? And we don't like we don't get any of that. We have like a couple scenes with them early on, and then they pop back up at the end of this movie. And and what to me was a totally unbelievable sequence of events leading up oh, to yeah. the Live Aid concert, where not only does he see his parents for like the first time in ten years or whatever, but he also like is somehow manages to reconnect with this guy that he shared, uh, you know. A, a special evening with um, in a hotel like years earlier. Somehow he tracks them both down. Like these things, these things both happen on the same day, and it also happens to be the day when, to me, like was was totally unbelievable. Like there's 
to me, there's no way that actually happened in real life. Yeah, I, I totally agree, actually. I, I think that there are scenes in this movie that are really played up for dramatic effect. And, you know, there have been times on the podcast when we've, you know, talked about other biopics or other movies that are based on, you know, real life events where, you know, sometimes we have to raise our hands and say, hey, you know, you know, these kinds of movies are limited in scope by what actually happened in reality. And sometimes reality isn't that interesting. But the problem with this movie is that even though it ultimately arrives at the same conclusion, in my opinion, that same conclusion being, you know, not very good for the movie itself, it's gone about it in a complete opposite way where you have scenes that, you know, from my understanding of what, you know, happened in real life, reading articles after I watched this movie, you know, for all intents and purposes, were either completely fabricated or there was very uh, a fast and loose uh, playing with the timeline of events and Freddie Mercury's life and Queen's, you know, trajectory. Yeah, and I think to that point, sort of going back to what I was saying earlier about how, well, I wanted, would have wanted to know more about his family life, I think what the movie instead spends time on, which um, sort of falls into that unbelievable category, I think, in, in, in some aspects, is this whole storyline involving Paul, um, who's like Freddie's personal manager, and... Paul is just kind of uh, it, 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 well, so it's, it's a very sort of toxic relationship between the two of them. But also, Paul is kind of just like a very one-dimensional villain type character in this movie, um, and he just he rang false at a lot of lot of turns. Um, so it, it was a little frustrating that the movie chose to spend its time on that instead of you know spending some time on the family, which probably was you know a, a, an influence to Freddie Mercury in one way or another. Um, I think, you know, that's just an example of where the movie is sort of disproportionate in terms of how it chooses to spend its time. Um, yep. And, you know, I think you can say the same thing about some of the musical sequences. I mean, like, you know, learning how they wrote these songs sometimes isn't the most interesting thing, believe it or not. Like, the We Will Rock You, for example, is just Brian May saying, oh, we need to find a song that gets the audience involved more. And he just comes up with the stomping and clapping himself. You know, another one bites the dust. Another example, it's just like the band is having an argument and John Deacon just sits there, is sitting there and just starts playing the bass riff. And that's kind of it. Um, so, you know, in some, in some areas, it's like they take liberty with the facts. They play fast and loose with the facts. In other areas, it's like the facts aren't that interesting or, or aren't as interesting as I would have wanted when you're thinking about like a great song like We Will Rock You, Another One Rise to Dust, and, you know, how it was created. Yeah, and I think that what you're talking about also ties into one of the, the recurring themes that I noticed in this movie that honestly got a little bit on my nerves was how on the nose it is also at times. So you talk about these moments where we don't really dive underneath the surface of Freddie Mercury or, or really dig in an interesting way to, you know, how Queen created their music. And then there are these moments where it, this movie is just inescapably telling you exactly what it wants you to to think or what it's trying to convey you know there are several moments one as much as i loved the live aid scene i was very annoyed by the repetitive scenes of people crying in the audience for example or, or like the people in bars who were like jumping up and down singing along like they were actually at the concert yeah that so, was a little false to me too yeah that so that was a little bit of a minor example but a more serious one that i that really started to get on my nerves by about the halfway point of the movie is just every time that you know, something where th there was a moment in the movie where Queen is like, their their direction of their music is questioned. They're just like, well, we're Queen, or whatever. And I was just yeah. so tired of hearing them say that. And, you know, again, 
if that is what happened in real life, I get it. But, like, it seemed like this notion of, well, we're just different and better than everyone else really bled deeply into, like, the overt consciousness of these, you know, performers. And it's totally possible that this is exactly what they were thinking, but I have a really hard time believing how frequently they said this about themselves in, like, any conversation where someone questioned their musical direction. Yeah, and because the movie is so thin when it comes to actually telling the story of Queen, it's like, they haven't established well enough that, you know, this band is, like, when they say, you know, we're queen, we can get away with this, it's like, well, I don't necessarily believe you based on what I've seen in the movie. Yeah, because they I spent mean, five minutes, to your point earlier, talking about the first album in their world tour. Like Exactly. I think they, I think they kind of expect that people have a certain knowledge about Queen coming into this, um, which, you know, I mean, everyone knows the songs, and everyone loves Queen. I mean, they really are a universal band. Like, I don't, I, I don't know that I've ever met anyone who doesn't enjoy their music. But at the same time, I don't think that the people know as much about the band as maybe this movie thinks they do. Yeah, and that might be true, but I don't know if I have any more, anything more substantial to add on this particular topic that we're talking yeah. about. But, I mean, to your point, like, maybe they thought people would know more about Queen. Maybe they didn't. But the problem is, in spite of having all this Queen background in their if it is, if I'm right in saying that uh, Brian and Roger were both a part of the, the production of this movie... They didn't seem to dig much deeper than the surface of what people already probably knew about Queen. Other than, you yeah. know, a few things here and there, like, like you said, that it should be really cool to hear, like, how they came up with, or, like, how they developed Bohemian Rhapsody, or how they came up with the baseline for, you know, we, you know, or not, we will rock you, but another, no, another one bites the dust. Yeah. Uh, that, that should be really interesting, and, you know, if that's how it happened, wow, that's, like, not nearly as interesting as I thought it would be, and, you know, it, it's yep, interesting. I completely agree. All right, to move on from that point, not to harp on it too much, before we start talking about any of the acting, I I would like to take a moment to directly ask your opinions on Brian Singer, who is credited for the direction of this film, though he did not complete directing of this film. He was fired uh, in the latter stages of the production of this film for, from what I could tell, just simply literally not meeting deadlines and showing up to work, which I've just never heard of in this industry. I don't know, like what the deal was. I'm sure there were extenuating circumstances around it that I don't fully understand, but I've just never heard of someone getting fired from a movie gig because they just wouldn't come to work. Like, if Brian Singer's so bored by Queen, maybe it explains, like, the end product that we got. Yeah. But I, I, I know I texted you after the after I saw the movie and said, you know, I don't know if... I hadn't looked at reviews, so I didn't know if this was a hot take or not, but, like, my hot take on the movie was they didn't fire Brian Singer early enough. And you said, well, I don't know if that's a hot take or not. So I'd love to get your thoughts on Brian Singer's uh, direction for, you know, what I understand to be the vast majority of this film. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I don't think it, he does a great job of not really hiding the ball there. And maybe, you know, the fact that there were different directors does explain some of the inconsistency in terms of how, you know, this movie chooses to spend its time. Like maybe one, maybe Brian Singer, maybe another director wanted to spend more time going into Freddie's backstory. Whereas the other person was just like, no, let's just make this crowd-pleasing movie with all these great songs that everyone loves. Um, and, and maybe that's the reason why the two things seem to be butting heads um, at, at certain points. But yeah, I feel like this is just, again, it doesn't get below the surface any. Um, I don't think Brian Singer does anything particularly innovative in terms of like the camera work. or I mean, yeah, you know, obviously the concert scene is very well done. But, you know, other than that... Um, 
it, it feels it's just very workmanlike. Like I feel like anyone could have directed this movie for large parts of it. There's nothing there. He doesn't put his own unique stamp on it in any way, which you know maybe is the objective. Maybe you know the, again, this is just trying to be a you know, slick, formulaic, crowd pleasing movie. Um, and you know, generally, you don't see directors really asserting themselves in that type of you know in in that type of movie but i think that when you're talking about a subject like queen like i would i wanted something different yeah i mean like you said if this movie is trying to be something beyond a tribute to its music and i think that's actually to to cycle back for a second i think that's a really good point maybe it was like just completely different directorial visions and that's why there's so much headbutting you know Uh i think that's maybe giving them a bit of the doubt because brian singer was just fired too late in this process for his replacement or his fill-in to actually substantially affect half of the movie. That's just my take. I could be totally off on that. But to your point, I think that, you know, this is the kind of movie where, you know, Queen and, and Freddie Mercury, you know, the, separately and together are very enigmatic, very interesting, uh, well, one person and two band. And, you know, to not have your own take on this and to not add your own flavor of presentation is something that, you know, because we don't know enough about be, because part of this movie experience should be about learning about who Freddie Mercury was and learning more about Queen. It it makes sense how a director might be. Oh, like let me be a little bit hands off here. But because we're not diving deeper beneath the surface, it I'm confused why there isn't more directorial flair put into some of these you know concert scenes uh-huh. or personal scenes with Freddie. Maybe I'm being super nitpicky about that, but like. I've just been thoroughly unimpressed with Brian Singer's most recent work. Like ever since Days of Future Past, you know, Apocalypse was not very good, and you know, this I think is is borderline bad, if not uh, atrocious. Not from a movie perspective, but his directorial performance in it. Yeah, I mean, I I, I think that you know, obviously we'll never know, but maybe some of the uh, backlash that has come against him. Yep. You know, outside of this movie, yep. um, affected what he was trying to do with Bohemian Rhapsody. Yep, and to not be too coy about that, I would probably should just say it out that he is has been caught up and on the wrong side of the Me Too movement. We'll say, yes. and you know, in the wake of the allegations against, um, while I'm drawing a blank, Harvey, Harvey Weinstein, Weinstein. In the yeah. wake of the allegations against Harvey Weinstein, uh, unfortunately, well. I should say, it's unfortunate that this is a reality in the industry, obviously, but it is fortunate that people felt good coming forward and, and airing right. allegations of, you know, whether they're valid is not for me to say, though I, have, of course, am, I am biased, I guess, in believing women when they come forward with these allegations that, you know, Brian Singer is, you know, potentially uh, a Harvey Weinstein-like figure, if not, not necessarily to the extent, but uh, at least in some of the actions that he has maybe allegedly perpetrated. Yeah. Yeah, so moving on from that, I want to talk about the acting because, you know, we've mainly been negative on this movie except for a few exceptions. And, and I don't want to be that negative on this movie because I did still – there are still parts of this movie that are really great. And one of them, in my opinion, is Remy Malik and his performance is Freddie Mercury. What did you think of him? Yeah, I think it's a really strong performance. Um, I think that, you know, critics have been right to single this out as, you know, one area where the movie does really succeed. I don't think it is quite the – incredible like Oscar shoe-in performance that everyone is, that a lot of people are claiming that it is um, I think that what he's doing is he's kind of taking on the 
popular persona of Freddie Mercury. It, it seems like he's building a character around Freddie Mercury's popular persona and not necessarily who Freddie Mercury maybe was. And again, maybe this is the movie and the fact that the movie doesn't go too deeply into Freddie Mercury's story or maybe even isn't that interested in telling Freddie Mercury's full story. But I think that it's basically like Freddie Mercury, he's basically playing the onstage version of Freddie Mercury like in the Freddie Mercury story, like in, in offstage scenes. Like he, he's basically just playing the Freddie Mercury that we are familiar with. Um, and like, you know, he kind of has this ego that, um, maybe, I, I mean, maybe you, you can kind of get, get from Freddie Mercury's stage presence. Um, so I don't, I don't know that he does a lot to change the popular persona of, um, you know, of Freddie Mercury or, or add anything new or different, mm-hmm. um, that I was expecting to see with, with Freddie Mercury, um, or, or, you know, shed some light on any different dimensions of this character, really. Um, but I mean, you know, I think, he, again, I think he, he's really solid. Um, he, he fully commits to this performance, um, no yeah. doubt about it. And I think he, he does bring, you know, a, a larger than life figure to life. You know, and that's the point that I wanted to make. I personally, I can't make a judgment on, you know, whether or not Remy Malik. Okay, first off, I can't make a judgment on how much insight this particular movie had into Freddie Mercury's private life and whether and what he was like off stage. I obviously cannot sure. make a judgment about that. But for what we do know, for the for the person on the stage, and and I agree with you that it seems like this performance or this character that's been created, whether it's Remy Malik, whether it's Brian Singer, whether it's the screenwriting, whatever it is, the combination of all these things, what has been brought together for the offstage persona of Freddy certainly leans into what is visible on stage. And of course, Freddie Mercury being as private as a person as he was, it you know, probably isn't a one-to-one correlation with who he is on stage, especially with all the dialogue that we get in the movie around how different of a person he viewed himself as on stage versus off stage. You know, you have these conversations with, you know, whether it's Mary or whether it's someone else about how, you know, when he's on stage, he can do no wrong, but he's a different, he's an extrovert on stage, but when he's off stage, he's a totally different person inside. And therefore it's hard to believe that that personality you see on stage is so front and center in his off stage life. So to that, to that extent, I agree with what you're saying. That being said, I want to emphasize the last thing that you said about Remy Malik bringing this larger life, larger than life persona, you know, to life and doing it justice. Because you know, we have talked several times about people on this podcast in roles that are very comfortable, very familiar for them, and this is something totally new, not only for Remy Malik, but I mean, I've never seen it. I mean, that's because we've never seen a person like Freddie Mercury. And, but, and Rami Malek wasn't even supposed to play the role. I mean, of course, yep. it was originally supposed to be Sasha Baron Cohen. Yep. Which, and you know, to some extent, I can see that, right? But I mean, know, yeah, that, that, that's why Sasha Baron Cohen was originally cast because he looks exactly like Freddie Mercury. Yeah, and I was going to say, that, like this transformation, to your point, like completely buying into this character, committing everything. You know, his aesthetic appearance, the way that he talks, the way that you know he carries himself, the way that he you know, speaks to others, right? Because we can't say the way that he sings. Uh, but, yeah, uh, he yeah. because he doesn't. And that's, I think that's for the best. But I don't think we should yes. make, I don't think we should make light of that. I think that's a good decision. No, absolutely. Uh, but I think that what he does deliver, it, I haven't seen anything like that this year. 
you know, again, I don't think this is going to be my pick for the Oscar ultimately because just because of the, the just because of the movie, honestly, like I don't think it does enough new. Like if if I am going to go with a performance that is in a playing a real life character, right? Like or a real life person. Um, it ha- it needs to bring something new to the character, or, or show me a new side to the character. Mm-hmm. And I don't know that I necessarily got that with Rami Malek's performance. You know, it's kind yeah. of the whole when you when you think back to Eddie Redmayne versus Michael Keaton. Um, <laughs> Do you and, want to think back I, to that? Yeah, well, I, not necessarily, but the fact that Eddie Redmayne, you know, got the Oscar for playing Stephen Hawking, and yes, what was obviously a very you know captivating, difficult performance difficult portrayal of a of a real life person but i think it's a little bit easier when you have source material when you have stuff to go off of that you can build a performance from it's a little bit easier to do that than it is to do like what michael keaton did where you're literally creating a character out of thin air with your performance yeah i mean i think that's fair i'm not saying that remy malik is it will win the award for best actor at the at the oscars this year i'm not saying that i'll vote for him but i think that I don't know if he's being overhyped because I think what he has accomplished is is adm- is very you know laudable. No, and that and that's fair. I just I honestly have seen people saying though that other actors should not even show up to the Oscars because Rami oh. Malek is going to win this, and I don't think that's fair at this point at all. Yeah, I don't know. I'd have to think a little bit more about that. But like Gary Oldman won last year, and I don't. I mean, I I will raise my hand and say I did not see Darkest Hour, yeah. but. I can't imagine that he added anything to Winston Churchill. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't claim that he did. I did see the film, but I think that for me, I was ha- I was happy seeing Lynn just because of the you know the breadth of his career more than necessarily the specific performance as Winston Churchill. But, yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah. And you know, to to wrap this point up in a bow, I don't know if we want to talk about Freddie Mercury and and Remy Malek's performance as him any more than this. But to wrap a, to put a bow on this particular topic, I think that. I definitely would reserve my judgment on this because we have another biopic coming up before the end of the year with Christian Bale as Dick Cheney, with Sam Rockwell as George Bush, where we're going to see you know, if there are additional uh, elements added to, to real-life figures that we know at least something about already. Yeah, I mean, I'm interested to see, you know, obviously what Christian Bale can bring to the table in, in Vice. I mean, it, it does look like it just from the trailers at least, that we may get a, uh, a unique spin on uh, this character. It, you know, it, it's hard to tell just from the trailers um, what exactly Adam McKay is going to bring to this movie. Um, but, you know, Christian Bale, obviously, great actor. He's already won an Academy Award for playing a real-life person, Dickie Ward. Um, so, I, you know, I, and the Academy does tend to reward those real-life, you know, performances a lot more often. So... We will see. It will, it will be an interesting race, nonetheless. Absolutely. All right, so uh, anything you'd like to add about Remy Malek's performance or Freddie Mercury in this movie before we move on? Uh, you know, I, I mean, I, I do like that they show sort of a difference. I mean, okay, so, you know, I, I say that he doesn't bring anything new to the character, and I think that's, I, I mean, I, I stand by that, but I do think, I, I appreciated that the movie did not glorify Freddie Mercury the entire time. Like, it shows, you know, the fact that he... You know, he he was probably an alcoholic. He, you know, was was doing drugs um, at a late portion of his life. He had, you know, a an ego 
growth that, you know, ultimately led to the band splitting up for a short time. Um, so I like that, even though Freddie Mercury is obviously, you know, this iconic, um, you know, front man, iconic figure in rock and roll music, um, they didn't, they didn't shy away from telling maybe some of the darker parts of the story. Yeah, and, you know, to be fair to the storytelling in this movie, because I, I will not defend it much further than this, I think that it does a good job of showing those, showing those faults and not condemning him either, right? I think ultimately you, you leave the movie, if not thinking highly, but uh, of Freddie Mercury, you leave the movie feeling good about who he came out being. Yeah, I, I, I definitely think that's, that's accurate. Awesome. So, you know, we talked about Rami Malek. He has a whole host of supporting uh, actors and actresses around him in this movie. I, I listed a ton of them at the beginning in our little uh, primer for our discussion. But are there any that in particular stick out to you? Yeah, so there's a few I want to highlight, actually. So, first of all, I was really interested to see what Lucy Boynton was going to do in this movie because I haven't seen her... Um, in a movie since, um, uh, you know, a movie that I love dearly called Sing Street, um, in which uh, she was the female lead. So I was really interested. I mean, loved her in that movie. Obviously loved that that movie. So I was interested to see, you know, what she could do in a more bigger budget movie. And I think she does a great job as Mary, um, who is, you know, Freddie Mercury's wife um, for a short time. Um, and I think that... Uh, you know, it's kind of a thankless role, honestly. I, I literally said, I, I don't know if you realize this as well, but like, you know, after the scene where he's, or the during the scene where he's engaged, you know, put he's asking her to marry him. Um, I looked at my friend who I was with and I said, do we know what her name is? And my friend was like, I have no idea. And at, at like a couple minutes after that, Brian May actually does say her name, Mary, for the first time. But you don't even know what her name is until like... 25, 30 minutes until they're literally engaged. Um, and so that, that to me says sort of what the movie thinks about this character. Um, and yet, nonetheless, I think Lucy Boynton gives it her all and does more with the character than, you know, is, is, uh, is written. And I actually did like the scene between the two of them where, um, where basically where Freddie is trying to come out to, Mary and um, he says, you know, I think I'm bisexual, and she's like, no, Freddie, you're gay. Um, and I, 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 I like, I think that uh, she brings a lot. She, she, she garners a lot of sympathy for her character in this scene um, because you can see she's torn between like the fact that she loves Freddie, but also like the fact that you know he's he's hurt her. Um, and so I, I, I really uh, thought that she. Uh, brought a lot to this character that uh, another actress might not have. Also, I think that, uh, I can't, I don't know what the actor's name, or I can't say, it, I can't pronounce his name really, but, um, who put the actor who played Brian May, um, it's, uh, Gwillimly. Gwillimly. I think he did a great job. Um, you know, I, I would have loved to learn more about Brian May. Again, this is another character I don't think they, they did enough with. Because, you know, he's a very interesting person. He has a PhD in astrophysics. They sort of allude to that, you know, briefly in the movie. But um, I, th I would have loved to know more about his backstory and how he came to play in the rock band. Because, of course, like, when the movie starts, he and Roger Taylor are already in Queen. So there's really nothing about their lives before that. Um, so, but, I, but I still thought that he brought a nice light touch to this character. Um, and, you know, there were some nice sort of comic relief 
moments involving the whole band. And then I also really liked Tom Hollander, who plays um, yes. the, the man, I guess he's a manager agent, I'm not really sure. He's the, um, so he's the lawyer, and then he becomes, yeah. he plays Jim Beach. Who, Miami Beach, yes. yes. Miami Beach. Um, yeah, I thought that he, 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 had, he gave a very nice, like, sort of deadpan performance. Um, have you, have you seen, a, I'm, I'm assuming you've seen him in other movies before, right? Tom Hollander, yes, absolutely. He does that exact same deadpan in every movie, and I know I yeah. complain a lot about people doing, <laughs> playing the same roles in every movie, but honestly, uh, Tom Hollander, I, yes, and, I mean, don't even get me started, there other people, too. Uh, I, I don't care. I like Tom Hollander. I like him as a supporting actor in literally everything yeah. I've ever seen in him. He's Pirates of the Caribbean. I'm pretty sure he's Pirates of the Caribbean. He's in Pirates of the Caribbean, those movies, as Commodore yes. Norrington. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and he's in, like, Pride, like the, he's, Pride, he's in Pride and Prejudice as, like, the gopher guy who tries to win the heart of Keira Knightley's character, whose name I'm forgetting, which is probably a bad thing. Elizabeth uh, Bennett. Yeah, Elizabeth Bennett. He's like the kind of gopher. He's like the cousin or whatever. He's kind of an yeah. idiot. But he plays the same deadpan. He does the same in every movie, but he's freaking great at it. Yeah, and I, I really liked especially in the context of this movie, because you have these scenes, like, when they're with the record producer played by Mike Myers, where it's like all of these huge egos, you know, Freddie Mercury and, mm-hmm. and Brian May and and, uh, you know, Mike Myers' character, and they're all just sort of, you know, very over-the-top. And then you have Tom Hollander's character, who's again, is just doing sort of this deadpan thing that, like, is, is in stark contrast to really, like, a lot of other people in the room. Um, and I, so I think it works well. And I, you know, again, very small role, but I enjoyed what he brought to it. Yep, I, I agree. I liked... There's, see, the things for me, I can't think of a single performance that really stood out for me of, of these supporting roles. I liked some and you know others i was indifferent about but i agree that i thought that Gwilym lee was good i thought the band members in general were good i like joseph mazello who plays john deacon um thought he was good i lucy boynton i guess is the most notable of the supporters but again like i'm not sure she was given too much to do i thought some of like she has some of the most cliche scenes in the movie i, I actually maybe unlike you i'm not sure that i was in love with the scene that he was coming out okay. uh, to her i think Again, that that could have been how it happened in real life, but and I can even picture it happening in real life, I guess. But ultimately, it, it kind of left a bad taste in my mouth that he's like working through his sexuality, and she's just like, "No, you're wrong. This is what you are." Uh, just personally, I'm not a fan of that. But that doesn't really have anything to do with Lucy Boynton, to be fair. That's yeah. just uh, her. That's just how she. That's what she was given to work with, and then that's what she did. But yeah, I, I don't know if I have too much more to add on supporting roles. Well, I, yeah, I mean, and you know, not to debate the point, but I think you can argue that, yeah, maybe on one hand she's telling him, or, or maybe she's saying, no, look, it's okay to come out and say you're gay. Like, yeah, I, I understand right. from, like, I, I figured this out from, you know, seeing how you act. You don't have to sugarcoat it to me. Yeah, you don't have to yeah. sugarcoat it to me. I think that's the other spin on it, I guess you could say. You know, I, I hear that, and I, I'm i torn on whether to, to go that direction, and, and I think probably that that is how it's intended. Yeah. <laughs> um, is kind of a it's okay. You don't have to to be anything other than yourself for me, which ultimately yeah. I imagine Freddie appreciates. So yeah, there, there you have it. All right, um, all right. Switching gears away from the cast here, I'd like to spend a little bit of time. It, it's kind of injected into our conversation already when we talked about characters, when we talked about the direction, and a little bit of everything. But I want to explicitly leave some time to talk about you know the narrative arc of this of this movie, the the plot itself, the screenwriting. If you have any thoughts on that. Scott, I, I kind of have my own opinions already formed, and I'm curious if they're the same as yours. What did you think of the plot of this movie? Did anything stick out to you as positive or negative? Or how are you feeling? Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to, like, talk about a discernible plot with this movie, sort of, for some of the reasons that we've already mentioned. But, yeah. like, I think it's more just sort of a collection of moments, and I don't really know, again, I don't really know 
why they chose some moments or why they devoted so much time to some moments as opposed to some other moments. Um, so I think that in, in terms of, you know, in terms of that, I, I think it's, it's very disjointed. I also think, you know, we've talked about the pacing um, and the fact that it moves really quickly at the beginning in terms of time passing and then it sort of like slows down. Um, you and know, then jumps the again. Yeah, and then at the end, just zooms forward again. Um, so I think that, you know, that does the movie no favor. Like, it's hard to have narrative cohesion when you're jumping around in time at so much and at such different speeds. When, when we're talking about a plot, it, it's hard to really piece anything together. We have, like, early on, we have, like, the band, it writes. We have, like, how they became a band, we have, which, again, they, they barely spend any time on. We have like their first. Wait, also, song. is that is it true how he like became a member of their band? He just literally stopped by says, that too, "I listen. Like, I've been following you. Also, give me your lead singer role." Yeah, I, I mean I, that seemed crazy to me, but it seems so crazy that it was like, well, maybe it actually happened. Um, but you know, we get that part. We get and then we get like the original how they're making like Bohemian Rhapsody, some of their first big songs, and then we kind of just get away from the music a little bit and get into more of. Freddie and you know a lot of his sexuality and his relationship with Mary and his relationship with the other band members um, and also and then, a very brief we didn't mention this in supporting roles but a brief tryst with now you know Queen stand-in Adam Lambert who plays the American or whatever at that like truck stop yeah yeah um, which is a very strange moment it, it was weird um, and then you know again we, we go we go back to the music at the end of the movie with the concert scene so it's structure wise it's again it's just sort of all over the place so yeah the plot whatever we're, we're going to call the plot out of this movie you know very disjointed yeah you know so the screenplay is done by anthony mccarton who ironically wrote the screenplay for theory of everything which we've already brought up on this podcast <laughs> and dark and darkest hour Wow. So, he loves his biopics. <laughs> he loves a good biopic. Uh, and the story was also contributed to by Peter Morgan, who I think did Frost yeah, Nixon. And, famous playwright, yeah, The Queen. Yep, yeah, and the, has written some of the episodes of The Crown, I believe. Yeah. Um, so it's not like you don't have extremely competent people behind the screenplay and the sure. story of this film. Which really just, I mean, because ultimately I, I 100% agree with you. I can't. Part of my, I already talked about this already, but part of my confusion for, you know, asking the question of what is this movie really about is, you know, part of that confusion stems from, like, the first hour. Like, I don't know if, I didn't know what the point of the movie was because there wasn't a discernible plot. Like, I, I didn't know if what was important about the movie or what was important to the movie even. And so then it's hard to track, okay, what's important here? Like, we skipped five years, but now we're spending a ton of time on this thing that we hadn't really focused on before. Mm-hmm. And then moving forward again, it got to the point where I wasn't always sure when in the timeline it was. Yeah. And... To be, I mean, and then to kind of maybe lob a, a critique at this movie that has already come up before, but it doesn't really seem like the directors and the producers and the screenwriters and story writers of this movie particularly cared where in the timeline some of these events were either, because it seems like it's it's been a bit fudged. Yeah, it doesn't seem like they're all on the same page for sure at, at, at some portions. Right. Well, not to dwell too much longer on things that we've already talked about. Uh, if if that is the last we have to say on the screenwriting and the story, then. Why don't we just give a little bit more time to praise the music? You, you know, you opened your thoughts on this movie about it being more than anything a tribute to Queen's music. Does and, and we did talk about how maybe it didn't deliver and it didn't do it Queen's music justice. But at the end of the day, the best part of this movie is still the Live Aid concert, which is 
Queen's music. And so I think that it's it's fair to, to give it its, you know, time in the sun. Yeah, you know, I think maybe they, they didn't spend as much time on some of the songs as I would have liked. But, like, it's hard because there are so many great songs. And I think that they find room for almost all of them. Uh, you know, they they get... You know, obviously, all of the favorites, Somebody to Love, We Are the Champions, We Will Rock You, Bohemian Rhapsody. But, you know, other songs like I Want to Break Free and Radio Gaga and Hammer to Fall, um, you know, they all get their airtime. Fat Bottom Girls, they all get their airtime um, in the movie. Uh, and, you know, in particular, the Live Aid scene is the highlight. And I appreciate that they, you know, in addition to, you know, we hear Bohemian Rhapsody, but we also hear... You know, I don't, you know, obviously they're being faithful to the to the original concert itself. I mean, they're using the actual recording from the concert, but you know, we get to hear like Radio Gaga and, and Hammer to Fall um, in the in the uh, in the concert scene. Um, and I mean, yeah, it really is like these songs. Like I said before, they hold up so well. Like you will find yourself bobbing your head throughout the entire movie every every time one of the songs comes on. Um, and it really speaks to, you know, the, the legacy that Queen continues to have and, and will have for generations to come, which is why I wish that this movie could have been a little bit better. But, you know, this the concert sequence, again, at the end, definite highlight. I think it, it really, in addition to giving us an opportunity to hear these songs, it really evokes the feel of being at a great stadium concert. And, like, they even have, like, some shots from the crowd, which I appreciate, like, like from the front of the pit, which I mean, it felt like it was just somebody with a shaky cam standing in the pit, which I appreciated. It really gives you the feel like, you know, I've been in the pit. I've been at the front of the pit in a big stadium concert before. And like, you know, it looked exactly like it looked, you know, from the camera uh, in this movie. So I like that even though the focus of the uh, of the scene was, you know, meant to be on Queen and on Freddie, like they also, um, you know, showed through these shots, through the, you know, shots of the crowd and everything, showed the impact that their music has had on generations of fans, um, which I think is, you know, obviously very important and obviously a reason why so many people are going to go see this movie. Yeah, and to, to make one little jab at the movie, I thought it was very strange that, and maybe this is actual footage, I don't think they're using actual footage in the concert, but no. um, I thought it was very strange that they had some, like, very old-looking people in the crowd at this concert. Yeah. But, yeah, well, it, and it, it's interesting too, like the the like hands of the crowd at the beginning, like you you could so tell that they were CGI'd. Like oh, it was yeah, actually yeah. kind of funny. It looked like yeah. a freaking Guitar Hero or something, like with the <laughs> CGI audiences. But then, like you know, once the concert goes on, they have close ups of you know actual people and extras and stuff in the crowd. It, it, it looks like they'd like funny. yeah, it looks like they'd like ripped footage from like the Champions League introduction from like Fox yeah. or something. When they're like doing the Heineken sponsorship or something, right? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that's that. I know that we 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 both are going to say that the Live Aid concert is uh, is our favorite scene or mo- of the from the movie. But do we want to maybe call any other scenes to, to complement some considerable time that we've already spent talking about that? I mean, I like the scenes about the writing of Bohemian Rhapsody, and you know the the recording of the the operatic section, and Roger Taylor having to be continuously told to go higher when he's singing the Galileas. I think all that stuff is interesting. That's the kind of stuff I wanted to see more of. Um, you know, just, first of all, the way that, you know, this song was viewed by Mike Myers' character, by the record label, um, and, you know, how their their vision, 
their like crazy vision was somehow translated into what became a massive hit. Um, I, I, I appreciated the, you know, the, the segments of the movie, which, which dealt with the creation of this song. I think that considering the movie is called Bohemian Rhapsody, they do give, uh, that song it's, it's due justice. And, and rightly so, and I think that's a, a good point. That is pretty funny. I, I particularly, of the moments in that scene, I particularly liked the moment where they're, like, recording a different part of it that's not the Galileos, and they all, like, fall backwards, and the, yeah. the, the sound barriers kind of collapse around them. That was, that was a very funny moment. Yeah. But, no, no I agree. If I had to pick a, another scene outside of that, the you know, one of the only other ones, one of the, I should say, one of the only moments that I really enjoyed outside of the, the more musical uh, focus of the film was actually the the moment where I think Freddie, you know, whether this whether this realization happened all at one time or whether this is just a dramatic representation of it, you know, is in Munich, I believe it is, and you know, you he, he there is Mary who comes and sees him in person after all these you know phone calls that to, that that were picked up by Paul but not passed along to Freddie. I thought that scene, which you didn't mention earlier when you were talking about Mary's performance, but is kind of the scene for me that stuck out for Lucy Boynton. I think sure. she does a really good job in that scene. I think Remy Malik does a really good job in that scene, you know, conveying a, a, a sentiment that we've gotten several times throughout the film that, you know, he, Remy Malik's Freddie Mercury, and I imagine this is true for Freddie Mercury in real life, is someone who, who deeply values loyalty, who doesn't forgive easily, and... You know, you see that come full circle on Paul, and that was a really gratifying scene. One, because I think Randy Malik does such a wonderful job conveying all those thoughts that, you know, must be going through someone's head in that moment where you've realized that, you know, what you've been chasing after, ostensibly a real friend or a friend that has meaning in your life, you've managed to abandon several of them, you know, a handful of them over the course of your time acting and not appreciated the ones that were right in front of you, chasing after something intangible, something that's not really there, something that never will be there. And, you know, when he realizes that, when, you know, Mary puts it bluntly to him that, you know, Paul doesn't care about him and, and that that realization dawning on him is a, a scene in the, movie, in the movie that, you know, in spite of the other moments where I was really left ungratified by a lot of these personal moments, you know, and whether this, again, is, is dramatized and, and kind of condensed into one scene and really this might ha- that happened over months or even longer, ultimately I thought was a really powerful scene. Yeah, I agree. I, yeah, and I also enjoyed Lucy Boynton's performance in this scene as well. Awesome. All right, we're going to have to, to do do the hard labor of putting a score on this <laughs> film. Yeah, this is We've talked about movies that are, you know, fives in some areas and ones in others, and I'm not sure that this... I'm not saying that this movie is a five in any area, but this is a movie that has quite polarizing parts to it, I think. Yeah, I think that Queen, the band, Queen's music, Freddie Mercury, get a 10. Uh, I think that this movie gets a 5.8 for me. Yeah, I I feel like that that feels about right. I'm going to end up maybe being a little bit higher than you, because I think maybe a little bit... I, I value... Remy Malik, maybe a little bit higher than you do, but yeah. not, not too much higher. I'm, I'm coming in at 6.1. All right. Awesome. All right. Well, that should just about do it for our discussion of Bohemian Rhapsody and the enigma that is Freddie Mercury, or maybe, again, as we talked about in our discussion, maybe this movie was more about Queen than Freddie Mercury. But let's take a short break, and when we return, we'll be discussing a few other things before a little movie trivia schmodown and some news. We'll be right back.
Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. Scott, we don't have any other recent releases to discuss on the podcast today, but we do have a pair of dated pieces of media, admittedly one more so than the other, that we'd like to talk about. So why don't we start with you? Yeah, so I want to talk about a TV show. You know, we occasionally discuss some television shows on the show that we've been watching. Um, And, you know, as you said, this is a bit dated. And as, as several people have told me, uh, it take, it's taken me a while to get to this one. Um, but I had just finished watching the first season of a show that cleaned up at the Emmys, and that's really what, what spurred me to watch it. That was the impetus for me, uh, finally deciding to watch it. And that is The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel on Amazon Prime, um, of course, created by Amy Sherman Palladino, um, who is best known for doing Gilmore Girls. Um, and this is the show, if you're not familiar with it, it's been out for... Yeah, probably about a year and a half now, honestly. Um, it's been a while. But uh, about a, a woman in the, I guess, the, about the 1950s, uh, 1960s, who uh, it, she's, at, when the show opens, she becomes, she's a, a, a housewife, um, and her husband uh, is, is an aspiring stand-up comic, like as sort of a, a hobby um, outside of his job. Uh, and... He, he bombs on a gig, at a gig um, for, like, the first time, and it leads to him lashing out at his wife, and, you know, they split up. And eventually, um, Mrs. Maisel, uh, Mitch, who's the main character, played by Rachel Brosnahan, um, discovers that actually she's the one who has the talent for stand-up um, comedy, and she starts um, trying to make a name for herself uh, in the evenings in New York City as a stand-up comic with the help of... Uh, Susie Meyerson, played by Alex, Alex Borstein, um, who is the bartender at this club called uh, The Gaslight, where, uh, where Midge start, first starts um, her stand-up comedy career, I, I guess you can say. And, and Susie soon becomes uh, her manager, um, and uh, a, a, as she tries to, to get Midge's name out there in you know, a... a world that is, in, in an America that is exactly, not exactly friendly to the idea of a female stand-up comic um, in the 1950s, of course. And, I mean, this show, like, everything, every praise that it has gotten, it deserves. Um, I fully understand why it cleaned up at the Emmys. It deserves every single one of them. Um, I think it is just a wonderful show. Um, it evokes the time period so well. Um, it's funny. It, I mean, it, it gives us, it, it focuses on something that we don't see a lot of shows about. We don't see a lot of shows about the process of stand up comedy, the process of becoming a stand up comic. Um, and I, yeah, I think it's really interesting, you know, what, how authentic it actually is, how realistic it actually is. I, I guess I'm not the one really to say, but um, it, it, it certainly feels authentic and it, it really gives insight into a world that, you know, I'm not familiar with. There's really not a lot of, TV shows or movies that really, like I said, really give a lot of insight into the process of becoming a stand-up comic. And especially, again, you know, when you set this in the time period of the 1950s, when you set, when you have a female, female protagonist, um, there's just a lot of interesting dynamics going on here. But I think that what takes this show above and beyond um, and, and what really brings it to the level of, you know, one of the best out there, if not the best out there right now, is the two performances from Rachel Brosnahan and Alex Borstein, both of whom won Emmys. Um, and, again, ab- 
absolutely completely deserves like Rachel Brosnahan. This is one of the best performances I've seen on TV, like maybe ever. Um, I think that like I had no idea what she was capable of just from um, you know seeing her on House of Cards in the first couple of seasons um, where she played Rachel. Um, I never would have expected that she had this performance in her, um, but like it is like her, her charisma is like literally falling out of the screen um, from the from the very start. And she carries it through to the very end. Like her, her performance never uh, wanes throughout this entire eight episodes, um, you know, first season. And like, I cannot say enough about how captivating uh, she is, and how, I mean, how really she is the thing which keeps you watching, um, and which gets you so invested in this character, and so invested in you know her trying to succeed. Uh, in in so many avenues, you know, trying to succeed in the world of stand-up comedy, of course, but also trying to uh, balance, you know, her personal life as well, um, you know, her her relationship with her husband, her ex-husband, um, you know, is sort of on and off again throughout the first season. So how she balances that. Also, you have uh, her dynamic with her her very Jewish family, um, played by uh, Tony Shalhoub. Uh, Who's her parents? Rather, her Tony Shalhoub plays uh, the father, and Mary Eagle plays the mother, and they're both great. Um, and uh, some of the, some, just some of the scenes between her family and also Joel's family. Joel being her husband, Kevin Pollak plays um, Joel's father, and some of the scenes between them are, are just great and, and hilarious. Um, and but also, you know, Alex Borstein, I think, is every bit as good as Rachel Brosnahan um, playing Susie. This. Uh, sort of, I guess you could say, foul-mouthed, like, take-no-prisoners character who, um, you know, it hasn't doesn't really seem to have any sort of passion in life, doesn't really seem to, um, you know, be driven to do anything in particular or be a particularly friendly person who has, you know, a lot of friends or anything like that. Um, but when she meets Midge, um, suddenly finds something that, uh, you know, she's passionate about and... and uh, you know that she can actually that she actually enjoys doing um, in terms of you know managing her trying to get Midge's name out there. Um, I think that she's fantastic. Her you know has a very acerbic um, sense of humor throughout. I mean she she's I believe she's a, has a background in her comedy herself. She was on Mad TV back in the day, um, and I I think that she again she's absolutely fantastic. And the the dynamic between the two characters um, is just is really where the money is made uh, when it comes to the show. Um, the, the clash of their personalities, and you know, again, it, it's Andy Sherman and Paladino, so you know you're going to get like the the fast paced dialogue, sort of like she's almost a female Sorkin in, in that sense. Um, I mean, you know, you had it on on Gilmore Girls. Gilmore Girls, of course, was known for having that fast paced dialogue between Lorelai and Rory, and you know, that central dynamic was what carried the show through all of its seven seasons. And I think you have the same sort of uh, you know incredibly compelling dynamic um, in the show again between two female characters between Susie and between Midge so yeah I mean can't say enough about how good this show is even if you don't think the, the, the subject matter sounds that interesting to you I mean it, it, it didn't to me I mean again the, the, sh the reason I decided to watch the show was because it had won so many Emmys I was like well I mean it has to be good right and it absolutely is um, so yeah I, I can't speak highly enough about it um, it's it's only eight episodes the first season. The new season is coming uh, December 5th, so I'm glad I don't have to wait long for it. Um, 
But the eight episodes, even though they're most of them are close to an hour in length, they really do fly by because of just how charming this show is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, also Alex Borstein is the voice of Lois on Family Guy, right? You're kidding me. I had no idea. Yeah, she is. Wow. Well, there you go. So I think that uh, strong background in comedy is confirmed there. Yes, for sure. <laughs> yes, but as you, I think you also pointed out that she was on Mad TV, which is, is true as well. So. Yeah. All right, so that was The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. And, and now I hinted at the start of this uh, part two that one of our pieces was a little bit more dated than the other. And that is because we are now jumping in the way back machine and not just going back to 2017, Scott. We're going back to 1960. So, I, you know, I told you about this when it happened midweek, but I had the opportunity to go see the you know, original Alfred Hitchcock version of Psycho from 1960. Oh, yeah. I, thought, I thought you were talking about the Vince Vaughn version from 1998. Oh, darn. You know. <laughs> it, classic. Yeah, you, you now understand more my excitement and and, and, yes. thrill, and how thrilled I was about about seeing the 1960 version. But no, no, no. I know that you joke. Um, no, so I, I got the opportunity to, to go to the uh, BSO, the Boston Symphony Orchestra, and watch a showing of Psycho with a live orchestral accompaniment. For for the music, which you know we were discussing uh, midweek about how that's one of your your dreams, and and I hadn't seen the original Psycho before, so not only did I get to wow. experience the movie for the first time, I mean, I, I'd seen some of the I actually have seen Vince Vaughn's version of it, R.I.P. Um, wow, R.I.P. Well, I mean, then you basically saw the same movie because it is like a shot, literally a shot by shot remake of the original. Yeah, well, you know, I don't know if it's because I'm a little bit older now or what it is, but I really liked Hitchcock's version a lot, a lot more. Oh, yeah. and, you know, of course, you know, to, to kind of walk us through maybe a, uh, to, to paint the picture, I should say, you know, you know, Psycho 1960, you know, cast being Anthony Perkins as Norman Bates, you know, a legendary performance from Anthony Perkins. You know, then you have Janet Lee and Vera Miles who play the Crane sisters. You have John Gavin as Sam Lewis who, on the side, you know, I have not seen the original Halloween movie, but I'm almost confident that Sam Lewis is also the name of the main character in the Halloween yeah, movie. Yeah, it's, it's Donald Pleasance's character, yeah. Okay, yeah. And I was almost laughing. I, I chuckled to myself that, like, not only did Psycho start the the, thre- the slasher genre, but the fir- the also the next slasher movie in, uh, ever created really was riffing, you know, leaning into the, its yeah. inspiration, we'll you say. Had, you had the, uh, I mean, you had the Texas Chainsaw Master, too, but yeah, I understand oh, that's, true, that's true, that's true. I just thought it was like, I did a double take almost. I was like, no way, they're yeah. not really using the same name. It's a not-so-subtle ode by John Carpenter, like, for sure. All right, fair Yeah, but also, I don't want to dwell on that. Fair enough, it doesn't actually matter that much. Our Halloween discussion, discussion was last time on the podcast. But anyway, yeah, so Anthony Perkins is the, is the real star here of the show and, and you know i i can sit here and talk for you know multiple minutes probably about how amazing his performance is and and obviously the the different twists and turns the movie takes which are so hitchcockian i think that it, you know you almost have to assume that it's going to happen but you know this is a real departure you know i, I kind of after seeing this movie i went back and you know looked at the timeline of hitchcock films and you know i i, I am somewhat familiar with them i've seen quite a few but you know looking at the the film before this, which was North by Northwest, and, and, and this was a real departure for him from you know yeah. what he, you know he, of course he he is famous for his twists and famous for keeping keeping his audience on their toes, but going from a detective mystery thriller like North by Northwest to what is ostensibly a horror thriller you know core of the genre here with Psycho and maintaining the distinct Alfred Hitchcock flair and flavor in this movie you know. 
I was I saw this with, an, with someone, and uh, we were talking about it afterwards. And something that this person said that really resonated with me was, you, you don't see movies done like this this day, and not just from a you know this was fifty eight years ago. This is not something that I think has evolved over time. If anything, it's regressed. Where you know they described it as, you don't get any world building in this movie. And so many movies in the present time, and understand so I understand how this is appealing to some audiences. Uh, you you waste uh, this person's words, not mine. Like you waste half the half a movie time runtime trying to create a world in which this, these characters live in. And Hitchcock's films just don't require that. And he doesn't... Yeah, you don't need it. Yeah, you don't need it. It doesn't require it. He doesn't waste time doing it. And as a result, you know, even though this movie, you know, is still, I think, you know, almost two hours, maybe like an hour and 50 minutes or so, it, none of that is wasted on world building. No scenes are throwaway. Everything is central to the narrative drive of the movie and the, and the plot progressing forward. And that's just something that I really loved about this movie and something that, that really stuck out in you know, for the lack of a better word, you know, in, in a world of movies today that you don't really see that many movies with minimalist worlds. You see all sorts of movies with minimalist plots, I think. But very few these days do you see minimalist worlds. And, and you know, I again, I can go back and I can rave about the performance of Anthony Perkins. I can rave about, you know, the plot twists and then the cleverness of Alfred Hitchcock in crafting this film. But above all, it just it reminded me how much I appreciate the, his style of movie. Yeah, I mean, you know, I uh, I am a huge Hitchcock fan. I'm very jealous of the fact that you were able to uh, to see this movie with a live orchestra. With that being said, um, Psycho is actually not one of I probably wouldn't even put it in my top five Hitchcock movies. Um, mm-hmm. Although I, I, you know, I absolutely agree with everything you're saying and the influence that it's had. Uh, like, you know, of course, one of the most famous things, which it was sort of the first movie to do, was. Uh, you know, Janet Lee was a huge star at the time, was, you know, the top-billed person in this movie. And, of course, his, Hitchcock, you know, is known for putting huge actresses in his movies, like, in, in leading roles. I mean, Grace Kelly um, w- was in several of his movies. Um, you know, there there are other examples which, you know, Tippi Hedren, of course, uh, was in also, also in several of his movies. But Janet Lee, you know, was the top, was the big-billed actress in this movie. Um, and then, of course, she gets killed off early in the movie and so it, it was it, it's one of the it, it really was the first movie to sort of fool the audience by putting this huge actress in, a, in, in you know what was ostensibly a leading role and then having her die which of course was followed up famously 36 years later by Scream with Drew Barrymore's character getting killed off in the first scene and since you're mentioning the Halloween connection, of course, it's worth pointing out that Janet Lee is the mother of Jamie Lee Curtis. Um, so there are just so many parallels you can draw between the two movies. But yeah, certainly, like, I, it, that is not an opportunity that I would have dared passed up um, to, to see that movie with Bernard Herrmann's famous, uh, famous score. So I'm, I'm definitely jealous. Yes, well, I I will refrain from rubbing it any further, and and we can move on to something that we both get to share in our experience of, and that is the movie trivia showdown. Scott, what would you like to talk about today? Well, I mean, there's so much to talk about. I think that we haven't really talked on the podcast since we had, I feel like I've said this a lot, but one of the most controversial matches ever in the showdown, (laughs) and and not for the first... Not for the first time either, uh, you know, that it involved John Roca. We really should go, um, I should go back at the end of the year and count how many times you've said that about in our yeah. movie trivia showdown discussions. Seems like they just keep taking it up a notch, but this was, I'm, I'm referring, of course, to the, the anarchy team match between the Founding Fathers and Corruption, uh, John Roca, Dan Merle versus Mike Kalinowski, Chance Ellison. 
Um, goes to, match goes to sudden death. Um, and we get a question about who directed Three Kings. Um, Merle unable to come up with the answer in time. Um, and then Chance Ellison writes down David O. Russell, which is the correct answer. However, he writes it David. And then the last name as O apostrophe Russell. Whereas, of course, O is his middle initial. Um, and I, I believe, did Mike write it the exact same way? No, no, Mike, Mike wrote okay, it. Mike wrote it the yeah. correct way. Mm-hmm. And Roca also got it correct. So Christian declared uh, corruption to be the winner, but uh, there was but a did, challenge. didn't Roca not spell his... Something happened with Roca's answer, though, too, didn't he? It, it, it wasn't written very clearly, uh, I think is what it was. Got it. it, it David wasn't written clearly or something. But, um, oh, it's right. It wasn't. He didn't write. He didn't even write David or something like that. Oh, it yeah. was, it, or it was not. He didn't have the actual name David spelled out or something like that. Yeah, that's what. But, it was. but yeah, but so Christian declared corruption the winner. Uh, there was a long challenge uh, after which Mark Ellis ruled that uh, they were going to accept corruption's answers, um, despite the fact that. Uh, you know, the, the last name wasn't really written correctly on the board. Um, and, of course, Roca was very upset about this, and it led to a, a very uh, passionate interview uh, that Roca and Merle had with Jen Sturger, which um, b- brought multiple people to tears um, in the interview. <laughs> including uh, Jen Sturger. <laughs> including, yeah, J- Jen being one of them. Um, and, it, I mean, it, it really was, like, a great moment to me, like – the, the passion that yep. the competitors and that Jen showed in that interview, like that's why we love the Schmodown. That's why the, the Schmodown community is so devoted because you have these people who go out there and give their all in something that, you know, is never going to be like something that's extremely popular to a large group of people. Um, like it, there's always just going to be this sort of self-contained audience. Um, but nevertheless, these people go out there and they, and they give their all even though, you know, they're probably not getting a lot uh, in return. Um, and so, it, you know, it was it was great to see the passion from Roca and Merle. Um, and I think, you know, you and I, I think we had kind of a difference of opinion about whether the ruling was correct or not. Personally, I, I don't agree with the ruling. I think that, um, to me, it's somewhat analogous to what we've seen in the past with, like, what happened with Roca and Jane Fonda. Um, I mean... In both cases, you have someone who knew the correct answer, who said the correct answer, but did not write the answer correctly. And, I mean, I think, you know, you can debate the semantics, but I think that ultimately the reason that they have the boards is because you have to write the answer correctly and you have to say the answer correctly. And while the difference may have been very slight, um, ultimately I think it, it was a significant one and I would not have ruled the same way that Mark did. Yeah, you know, I, I try to be as reasoned as possible and considering all sides of an argument, and I do understand the complaints of of people like John, of people who are, you know, aligned with, you know, his view, like yourself, in terms of the ruling. Um, and, but ultimately, I also, I think I, I do land on the side of, of Mark and, and Christian, I, I assume, as well, and the, how the ruling goes. You know, you can agree or disagree with the principle of the boards, but it, my understanding, and 
know, people have complained that the rules aren't explicitly laid out and written for everyone to just access at will, although I think that's a stupid thing to complain about personally. Um, I, I find it that like, all right, you know, these are the rules, the rules that everyone agreed to. The reason why Dan's, uh, answer didn't count is very clear to me, not controversial at all, which is why I was, uh, which is why I was, had my eyebrows raised at first because first on the, on a first pass, I didn't even notice that chances had done what he had done with the, Oh, Russell spelling. And two, like when they initially challenged, they were complaining that Dan's didn't count. So I was like very confused about why I was, I was in yeah. disbelief that they were challenging it. Um, and then, I'm not sure if there was just parts that were cut from the video that we didn't see. I think. That, I mean, I think there was definitely a lot of editing that went on. I'm sure, right, right. But it, if there was a lot of editing specifically around these particular moments of the challenge, then it would explain why, like, they were confused and uh, or they were confused about one thing, and I was confused about why they were confused. <laughs> um, to be fair, and so like, I, I should rephrase this. I think that if there was editing around Chance's answer and them complaining about Chance and the way he spelled the name. Then that would make sense, but but I ultimately I come down in favor of I understand why corruption won in terms of the rules. I you know maybe it, it leaves a, a bad taste in all of our mouths that that's the way that you know the the match ended. I think all parties involved would have liked to have seen it to a, a you know more a less controversial conclusion. I should yeah. say. But that being said, I also agree with the ruling. Like you know, phonet- like it, ultimately, I think saying the answer is more important. Than the whiteboards, I don't think they have equal importance. I don't think that the rules state that they have equal importance in the schmodown. I think that the rules that they lay out is that if you spell it phonetically correct, that is the right answer, or like that, then that then that passes, you know, the 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 smell test per se. And I understand how that doesn't necessarily ring true in all scenarios for people in terms of like making people feel good about that. You know, I have seen some you know ludicrous, in my opinion, examples of like extensions of what cha- of what has happened to chance yeah. at the same time i deeply empathize with someone who like all right the reality is like i don't know how much time chance spends you know looking at directors names written down and i can understand how someone you know you know, you know that this person's name is david o russell and you don't know and like you just aren't aware that it's a middle initial versus like being of you know a heritage in which your last name would be o russell um so i have some empathy for that I know that empathy doesn't ne- doesn't necessarily equate out to or lead to a right answer, but I think within the bounds of the rules, that is like not being flagrant and it's like misspelling or mis not misspelling. I shouldn't say misspelling because it's not misspelled at all. Um, it's not being flagrant in its you know stretch of being phonetically correct and, and spelled incorrectly. It's not so. Uh, I guess uh, egregious, so to speak. And I don't know. I I hope that you would agree with that. That some of the examples that we saw in the Schmodown Facebook group were so ridiculous, like uh, uh, false equivalencies. Yeah, I mean, yes, I, I think certainly it is not the most egregious example. Um, and I, I guess I, I mean, I do understand why the ruling ended up going the way it was. But um, yeah, it, I mean, it definitely did leave a bad taste in my mouth. And I feel like, you know, at the end of the day, it's a different name. And I think. Well, while it's great to be amenable to spelling differences, I think there has to be a point where you draw the line. And for me, that should have been a point where you draw the line when you're talking about, you know, blurring two names together. You know, just as if Chance had written D-A-V-I-D-O space Russell. I mean, 
would anyone have said that was correct as well? I mean, I, I, I don't know. Like, it, for me, that's not correct either. So, it, yep. it, and I, I think it's kind of the same principle. Yeah, I see what you're saying. And I, I, think that, I think it's a fair question to ask. And I think that, you know, maybe this will lead them again to revise some rules or rethink <laughs> about how they... Summit, yeah. Yeah, or rethink about how they apply certain rules. And I just think that as frustrating as it is, um, I don't know. I don't, maybe there just isn't a nice answer to make. There's, every, yeah, there's not a good answer. That's, yeah, that's there's not a, there's not a good answer to make everyone feel better, but I think by the letter of the rules and how they exist and how I understand that they exist, that the ruling made sense. And I, and I do hear and understand where Ellis is coming from when he's saying like, I don't know why this is controversial because this is the rules, whether you like them or not. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think at a certain point, there's only so much shouting you can do about it. But nevertheless, I think that Roca, uh, this this thing didn't last long for Roca because, mm-hmm. of course, he was able to reclaim the singles title um, for the first time in over a year. Which felt right. Yes. He, he was able to defeat his former horseman partner, um, William the Beast Bibiani, um, in, a, in a good competitive match. Um Again, round three, Hans Bibbs, or I guess round five in this case. Um, he was unable to come up with an answer to a question about the man from Uncle. Um, and, and it gave Roka the victory, which means Roka will be competing at the Schrodown Spectacular for the singles title to defend the singles title, which, of course, he was unable to do last time. Um, he was, after beating Merle to win the title, he was immediately beaten by Mark Riley um, at the collision, I believe it was, or maybe the spectacular. Um, but he will he will be defending the belt against the winner of the singles ultimate showdown, um, which has also well sort of kicked off. We we had the first match of the gauntlet, um, the qualifying gauntlet to to get that last spot in the ultimate showdown. Ben Bateman defeating Janine the Machine. Um, we'll get the other half of that gauntlet this week with Lon Harris and Josh Makuga. And then we will get into the uh, into the singles tournament. Of course, we have. You know, I was looking at the. Or they showed the bracket, I believe, at the end of the last match, and very very tough bracket. There are some good matchups, like McQueenie and Andreco facing each other in the first round. Yeah. Um, Ethan and Chance are going right. up against each other. Um, Clark plays the winner of will be the to, the two the winner of the two gaunt, the winner of the gauntlet, gauntlet yeah. yeah finals. Um, and I mean, yeah. So it's it's there's there's going to be no uh, no weak links in this tournament when it, when we get down to it. So I mean, any match could go any way. I feel like um, so it, it's definitely going to be interesting to see who gets there. I mean, I think right now Lon Harris is someone who is absolutely on fire. I mean, he's he's he and his brother have you know after losing JT, I think a lot of people probably thought he was dead in the water, but his brother has come in and the two of them have not missed a beat. Um, Particularly long. Particularly long. Yeah, particularly long. Most recently beating uh, the odd couple, Snyder and Andreco, to make it to the Anarchy Finals, and they'll be facing off against uh, who's the boss? Mark Riley and Ben Bateman. um, Who crushed Chaos. Yes, they they, um, had a resounding victory over corruption um, in the other semifinal match, and the team's clicking really well right now between. You know, the pair of Riley and Bateman, but also their manager, the the man, the myth, the legend, oh my God. Finn Stock. We were texting um, back and forth about about this. <laughs> returned, you know, if he wasn't there already, returned to form for, for Bobby oh, Gucci. Yeah. 
he uh, he had some good lines about the uh, the Titanic. Titanic. I don't see any <laughs> icebergs. Yeah, um, we're in the Caribbean. Was, I don't see any icebergs. It was great. Um, yeah. So I, I I hope that honestly I kind of I'm kind of hoping this team stays together, but I don't know you know what the implications are for that considering action. you know Riley's got the Horsemen and Ben has the Action Army. Well, you got all sorts of speculation on the... I mean, obviously, speculation doesn't mean anything on the movie trivia. Yeah. It's on Facebook page, but all sorts of speculation that it's going to become... Uh, the Action and the Horsemen are going to join factions together and oh become the Seven Deadly Sins. <laughs> I just can't see Roka putting aside his differences with Bateman and Andrew Guy and doing that. But you know, you might have said that about him and Merle. You might have said that about him and Merle at one point. Well, I... I don't think him and Merle had the same sort of bad blood. I mean, no, they didn't have the same sort of bad blood uh, for each other that uh, that he does with um, with you know team action and. You feel like they kind of buried that hatchet, fans. though. I mean, yeah, I will. I will say, like when Roca and Guy played, like it was a surprisingly simple match. Um, so maybe you know, maybe they are hinting at that. I don't know, but. Again, I, I would still be surprised, I guess. Is he a, I mean, yeah, there's that speculation, and then there's the other major speculation, which is Riley will defect and go heel. I mean, I could see it. Like, I think Ben has definitely had an influence on him a little bit, but I don't know. I still think, I can't, I can't see Riley with his, you know, being the Superman lover that he is, um, ever choosing to go heel. We did, however, get some more kayfabe for the first time in a while. Um, speaking of Riley, we learned that... Uh, you know, the, the storyline with uh, his dog being stolen, which I always thought there was going to be more to this storyline. It always seemed too easy of a conclusion that Bateman was actually the culprit, um, you know, and, of course, was banned from the collision when Thad found that out. And, of course, uh, I believe it was Bobby Gucci who came up with a video uh, showing that uh, Mike Kalinowski was actually the one who, uh, who stole... Cal, Mark, Mark Riley's dog, which obviously played into that match between uh, between him and between Who's the Boss and, and Corruption. We also, in the way of kayfabe, had a, a couple of scenes in the last episode. Um, we started out with, with Brianne Chandler basically coming to Thad and saying, look, we know that Kalinowski is pulling your strings. Have a list here of people who say they're not going to compete in the spectacular unless you stop this unless you tell Kalinowski no um and then at the end of the episode Kalinowski came in and I forget what did was there something in particular that he asked that for yeah he asked for basically <laughs> corruption to play the winner of the finals right the number one contender and Thad said no, no. and Mike the, the scene ended with Mike simply saying okay and what can only be a very menacing um, what, uh, fashion and, and exiting Tad's office. And I have to say, I think we're finally going to find out maybe what was in those corruption envelopes that got mailed to everybody, you know, a few months ago. Um, I think that Kalinowski probably, while he's, it's been sort of on the fence, whether he's a heel or a face, um, I think he's, he's probably about to do a full heel turn and, and try to just blow up the league, but it, it should be interesting to see what happens. It will be. I mean, talk about a 180, a guy who was MIA after his crushing uh, triple threat defeat yeah. in the very first match of the year. And, right. you know, like I said, going MIA for months, and then you know, he's been the center of the showdown. Yeah, he's the, been the most important person the past few months. Which is awesome. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I love what they have done with the Kalinowski storyline. I mean, as I, I usually love what, what they do with all of these storylines. I think the Kalinowski storyline and corruption in the Anarchy Tournament and all that is, is really just the latest in, in what has been a great season, uh, not only of matches, but of, of storylines and of big reveals and twists as well. Well, there you have it. Also, just to quickly back up, we don't have to spend much time on it. I do want to say that sure. the post odd the odd couple versus the Harris brothers match is the most upset I've ever seen Mark and Draco. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fair. Usually, he's pretty pretty even man, yeah, mild mannered. Um, but uh, what was it exactly that he was fired up about? The how difficult their questions were right. round two. Yeah, because they got sports movies, which was not one of their strong points anyway. To be and, fair, they they were asked some ridiculous questions. Yeah, well, okay, so they were, I mean, the Keanu Reeves question was pretty ridiculous, um, about, like, he played the quarterback in two different movies. What college did he attend in both movies? However, there were also some questions which they absolutely should have gotten, um, and I, I'm, I'm trying to remember what one of them was. There was one that they went to multiple choice on, which no way should they have had to go to multiple choice on it. Um, so I think it, it balances out a little bit because some of their questions I think they should have done a little bit better with, whether it's their strength or not. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, they, they there were some a, a couple of uh, screwballs in there as well. Eh, nice, nice pun there. I like that. That was good. <laughs> I don't know if that was intentional or not, but well done. I, I, it wasn't, but, well, I, I should have just lied and said that it was, but it wasn't. <laughs> Too late now. All right. That should just about do it for the Movie Trivia Showdown, which leaves us with some news. You know, we've been a little bit lighter on the news section, you know, the last handful of episodes, but, you know, a lot of stuff has happened in the last two weeks in the real world, not just the Movie Trivia Showdown world, and let's talk about it now. Yeah, let's do it. Sweet. All right, so first up, Netflix, caving to the will of the Academy, is giving theatrical releases to two of their movies, you know, this holiday season. The first being Roma, and the second being The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Uh, Any thoughts on this? I, myself, was kind of surprised that they finally caved, that they actually care about these Academy Award nominations. I thought they were perfectly content with just chugging along, but clearly not. Well, I mean, these are both, you know, huge movies that I'm excited to see. I mean, Roma is, of course, Alfonso Cuaron. Um, A lot of people are, are hailing this as... You know, one of the best picture front runners, along with Stars Born. Uh, you know, maybe throw a, a beautiful boy, boy erase something like that in there. Um, you know, a lot of people are saying this is one of the movies that's going to be uh, a big hitter at the Oscars, and I, I'm, I for one, am excited to see it. And then Buster Scruggs is the latest from the Coen Brothers, um, and it's a series of western, uh, you know, vignettes. Um, you know, I love a good Western, and, you know, the Coen brothers are, are some of the best out there. So, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see both of these movies, and I think that we will hear both of their names coming up in awards season. Well, I think that's, that. I mean, that would be huge for Netflix. Let's not, let's not even be coy about <laughs> yeah. it. That would be massive for them. We, t- we talked in our Oscars show earlier this year that, you know, they have not been able to break through in the, in the big categories at the, mm-hmm. at the Oscars, and, you know, I'm sure the Academy appreciates them bending the knee, so to speak. Yeah, and I mean, you know, this is the next step for them, I think. You know, they've taken over the TV world. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, this is this is the natural next step for them, and I think we'll see them start to get even more involved in, in the movie world uh, in the future. Yeah. 
All right, moving on to our next piece of news. This one is a little bit more on a somber note, I guess, because just how it, it kind of speaks to the the ridiculousness sometimes that, that things go to. But you have Jeffrey Rush, who I don't know if you've been following this or not, is currently on trial for defamation. Um, uh, regarding, no, I was not aware of this at all. Yeah, currently on trial for defamation for his role in King Lear. I'm not super read up on it, I'll be honest. But, you know, he's the point where... A rumor is that he has decided that he's no longer going to act because this this defamation lawsuit has just been so much, I think, um, uh, going on in his life that he's he's quitting acting. I mean, granted, he's not young. He's he's pretty old now. But uh, it's, it's, it's awful to see something like this, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's really kind of bizarre um, that, that that's happening for, I mean, how old must he be now? Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, honestly, I'm not super familiar with Jeffrey Rush outside of the Pirates of the Caribbean. Like, yeah. I've seen a few things by him, but I'm not 100% sure how old he is. Uh, 67. Okay, well, you know, nevertheless, Oscar-winning actor, you know, you hate to see stuff like this. Yeah, you know, I was reading some of the headlines, and one of the headlines that I came across in is in... In Jeffrey Rush's case, it's easy to forget who is on trial, um, which, you know, I think... So he's so basically to kind of paint the picture here of what's going on is that the Daily Telegraph in the UK uh, published um, a story that Jeffrey Rush behaved inappropriately on the set of King Lear in 2015 2016. Um, but the problem is is that the, like the person's account that they were giving like she did not give them permission to publish and so Jeffrey Rush is suing them for defamation. Meanwhile, the Daily Telegraph have called like literally ten or twenty witnesses against it. It's it's kind of insane. Uh, I, I mean, I, that doesn't sound like defamation to me. Like, defamation is usually where, you know, there's been obvious evidence of dishonesty. I think that, I don't know enough of the details about this, but it sounds like they're not on opposing trials. Or op- that, it doesn't sound like the person who they were reporting that was accusing him of inappropriate behavior was actually accusing him of inappropriate behavior. So oh, okay. Like. So, yeah, that. That's different. Yeah, I need to maybe I'm maybe I'm coming off as sounding a little bit uneducated on this, and maybe I should have done a little bit more reading before we talk about it. I didn't think about it at all. So. Yeah, but I, I was more focused on the fact that it was the headline that I the first headline I saw was that he was basically quitting acting because of this, which I thought was interesting. Yeah. All right, we'll move on. Uh, so you know, in you know older people news, I guess Ridley Scott <laughs> will be uh, directing Gladiator Two, uh, which is now in the works. I Scott, I know that you and I are both. I'm right in saying we are both fans of Gladiator. I know that I am. Yeah. I thought that you were as well. Cool. I'm not getting that wrong. Uh, so are you excited about Gladiator 2? It's it's coming quite a ways after the fact, which only leads me to believe that it will cast uh, all the original actors reprising their roles 20 years later. But uh, what do you think? I mean, honestly, like, I, I wouldn't want them to do it if the original actors weren't in the movie. Um, like, I, I really don't... I, I am hesitant about this just because it has been so long. I really don't want them to screw it up because Gladiator is such a powerful movie. Um, and I think the, you know, the central performances by two of the best, Russell Crowe and Joaquin Phoenix, um, are, are what gives the movie, or, you know, one of the major things which gives the movie its power. So, I mean, you know, Ridley Scott being on board certainly gives me hope, but, um, you know, we'll see. Fingers crossed. Yeah, and I hear what you're saying. I this only comes to mind because this is becoming a, a trend. It's a, it's a new fad almost in the space. We have Blade Runner 2049 last year doing it, where they you know 
film a sequel four years later and use the same characters. And, you know, then, of course, Halloween just did it, the, you know, last sure, month. Yeah. And, and, you know, now I'm, I'm sure there's some other obvious ones that I'm forgetting that have also done it. But, yeah, it, yeah, you're seeing this happen a little bit more frequently than you used to. And uh, I'm willing to entertain it. Yeah. Awesome. So in other, uh, again, sticking with the trend of older actors, uh, Kenneth Branagh and Judy Dench are going to star as, uh, well, I shouldn't say they're both going to star, but Kenneth Branagh will star as Shakespeare and Judy Dench, his wife, in a, in a movie that is, you know, in the works. I don't know exactly the timeline for its uh, release, but it's also going to be directed by Kenneth Branagh. I mean, when you think Shakespeare, like, you think of these two actors. Like, they, Kenneth Branagh has his, literally has his own Shakespeare theater company, which Judy Dench has been a part of. Um, and I actually saw them together in a production of The Winter's Tale in London. Um, so, when you think about making a movie about Shakespeare... Like, these are the two people that, you know, you you want to see in those roles. So, I mean, I'm optimistic. I love Shakespeare. Uh, I think Kenneth Branagh, while sometimes performance-wise, he can be a little over the top in, in films, I think that, um, you know, again, he, he, he appreciates Shakespeare and, like, has the requisite experience with Shakespeare that you want, would want for someone to make this movie. Yeah, and, and so does Judy Dench, who I think her last yeah, Shakespeare performance was The Winter's Tale with Kenneth Branagh. So yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think I'm right in saying that. And so, I mean, and also you can look back to just last year, right? She was in Murder on the Orient Express with him, I believe. Yeah, if and I'm I mean, remembering. you know, this, this won't be the first movie where she's played, you know, it, she's had a role in a movie about Shakespeare. Of course, she won an Oscar for play, playing the Queen of Shakespeare no. in love. Um, so... I forgot she won an Oscar for that. That's, yeah. I forgot that. It's, it's, it's kind of amazing that she won an Oscar. I mean, if you look it up, she only has like maybe like nine minutes of screen time or something like some like really small number of minutes. Even less than Anne Hathaway. Hathaway. Even less yeah. than Anne Hathaway and uh, Les Miserables. So. Yeah. Um, no, but, and to, to kind of wrap this up, I think that I was doing a little bit of background research on this right before we started, but uh, the release is it's going to slip in the qualifying uh, for the Oscars this year. It's going to have like a very limited release at the end of this year and then release more widely, I imagine, in early 2019 kind of like we saw with several movies last year. So it will qualify for you know this coming year's Oscars. Uh, and it was the reason why it's only recently getting announced is that Sony just picked up the rights to it. So they will be distributing. Uh, okay. Yeah, they'll be distributing. All right, moving on to the next piece of news. We have uh, Ava DuVernay, whose most recent movie you did not see earlier this year, which was... Um, oh, remind me, I'm blanking. I'm having a lot of blanks today. This is bad. It's uh, A Wrinkle in Time. There we go. Oh, right, yeah. Yeah, A I Wrinkle in Time. That. Yeah, she did not direct... Or you did not see that, I don't think. Um, and, but she is, uh, making a Netflix-backed documentary of Prince, uh, fitting the topic of our musical-themed episodes that we're having. What do you think about this? Um, so, you know, I, uh, I've not exactly, I don't know very much about Prince. I've never been a huge fan of his music. Um, but Ava DuVernay, obviously an extremely well-regarded filmmaker, um, and, Prince, obviously a very extremely well-regarded um, musician. So this is going to be one where I think I'll just kind of see what the response to it is before I go see it because it's not something that immediately jumps out as being, you know, interesting to me. But, you know, I think it could, could probably be really good. Yeah, I mean, it's also one of those scenarios where will it get a wide release? You know, is Netflix backed? Will it release in theaters? Yeah, you, know, you would think, but who knows? We shall see. All right, Carrie Mulligan, who I don't know if you're familiar with her or not. Um, she starred... Yeah, oh, absolutely. Okay, yeah, well, she's the lead role this past year in a short-run uh, miniseries on the BBC called 
Collateral, which was written by uh, playwright David o- David Hare. Yes, I think that's right. Yeah. Yep, David Hare. Uh, anyway, she has recently been publicly coming out and demanding onset child care for uh, women with children in the film industry, which uh, I have not heard much about since this statement was released. But I noticed it and thought it worth noting ourselves because uh, obviously in the constant, you know, Me Too is, is just one, uh, I guess, manifestation of, you know, equal rights for women in the film industry. And I think that this would be another one. Yeah, I mean... I, I don't know that I, that I have too much more to add except to, you know, just to echo your sentiment. Um, you know, it's, it's a very interesting issue that, that she has raised, and uh, I hope the dialogue continues. Awesome. I wonder if Angelina Jolie would have continued to, you know, act in movies if that were the case. That, that's true. I don't know. I, I mean, she's, I guess she's still holding herself out as a director, right? Like, I think, I don't know if she's directed anything since Unbroken, but I think she did shift towards directing at one point. Yeah, I think that she's stopped acting at this point. Um, not, yeah, I think she stopped acting, yeah. Yeah. So and, and so, to your point, I think that... I don't think she's the kind of person who would completely move away from the film industry. I mean, it's what made her famous. But, uh, yeah, we'll see. I don't know if she has anything in the pipeline or not. Yeah. Regardless, our last news topic for the day before we wrap things up here. Johnny Depp reportedly has uh, left the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. Scott, I, I don't know how big of a Johnny Depp fan you are. Uh, I remember I remember him I, I at least I remember liking him when I was a little bit younger these days he's less palatable to me but uh, what are your thoughts on this uh, yeah I mean he's such a central part of the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise like it's it's hard to imagine where they can go from here I mean you know I did, I didn't even like the last two Pirates of the Caribbean movies actually I thought they were pretty bad um but I don't know that that is necessarily because of Johnny Depp. Um, at the same time, I think that at a certain point, his, his Captain Jack Sparrow shtick did get a little played out. Um, so maybe maybe it's for the best, um, you know, that he's not going to be in this movie. But honestly, like, if we're talking about reprising all of the original characters and just not having Jack Sparrow, that does not get me interested at all because he was definitely the best thing about those first two Pirates of the Caribbean movies, which actually were good. Yeah, I mean, I, like, I mean, to take it a step further than your point about you not particularly enjoying either of the most recent two Pirates of the Caribbean movies, I did not even bother to go see either of them, and I have no desire to see any Pirates of the Caribbean movie that is released, unless it is seriously, uh, gets a huge makeover in terms of my understanding of the quality of those movies. But it doesn't sound like it's going in that direction with Johnny Depp leaving that franchise. You know, he is, he is, he is a skilled actor to some extent, although there are other elements of his character that leave a bad taste in my mouth extracurricularly so to speak yes all right scott i think that will just about do it for episode 22 of some like it scott do you have any parting thoughts to leave us with today uh go listen to queen i guess usually i say like go see the movie that we talked about that's actually really good but i don't know about going to see bohemian rhapsody i mean again you know like i said i think if you're interested in this movie if you like queen You'll probably enjoy it. I mean, we're looking at this, obviously, with a very critical eye. If you just want to go have a good time, I think you will if you if you go see the movie. That's my ultimate review. Yeah, yeah. And if, if you know any, uh, as a side note, if you know any good place to get a cheesesteak in Philadelphia, tweet at me, at Starby Dead. Slide right into his DMs. Yeah, you, DMs are always open. There you go. You heard, it, you heard it from the source. His DMs are always open. Hit him up. <laughs> okay, so, and on that note, where can people find you on Twitter, Scott? Where can people find your DMs? 
DMs are open. At Scarby Dent. There you go, guys. Slide on in. Slide right in. Awesome. And I can be found at, at S. Shelton2013. I've been retweeting at least a little bit more than I have in the past. So check check me out when I'm retweeting uh, over there. All right. You can also find our podcast on Twitter. And we'd love it if you followed us over there at, at Media Plug Pods. And we'd love it even more if you checked us out on our podcast Patreon page. Uh, there are a bunch of different reward tiers over there, depending on how much you're, you know, willing or able to pledge to the podcast. And we'd really appreciate it if you check those out. And you know, even if it's only at the one dollar level, you'll be getting the episodes early. And we would really appreciate it. Go a long way to helping us make this show sustainable over time. And that's at www.patreon.com/mediaplugpods to check out everything for yourself. Pick the tier that's right for you. If you choose not to support us over on Patreon, we totally understand, and that's totally fine. You can still find us on Apple Podcasts, where we'd also appreciate if you rated and reviewed us, as well as subscribed and shared, so that we continue to reach a broader audience. You know, Scott, we've been doing this for almost a year now. It's crazy. It, you know, we're only we're 10 months into this endeavor, and, uh, you know, still, any chance we get to expand our audience is something that we would love to do. All right. I've said enough. We really appreciate all of you. For taking the time out of your day to listen to us chat about movies, we'll be back in a couple weeks' time with two more movies to discuss. That's Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, and Can You Ever Forgive Me? We hope you'll join us again then, but until next time, we hope you have a wonderful day. For Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. Bye, everybody.